Okay, so the story of She's All That's Naked Graduation Stunt starts with another fictional teenager and another big high school moment. Neil Patrick Harris, the star of Doogie Howser, you know, that 90s TV show about a kid doctor, in real life went to La Cueva High School in Albuquerque, New Mexico. One day, Neil Patrick Harris got up during an assembly and he told his fellow students how cool it was to be an actor. He did an impression of Dudley Moore. A younger classmate was listening and he believed him. That kid's name was Freddie Prince Jr. I was like, bam, that's what I want to do, recalled Prince. And that's what he did. By the end of the 90s, Freddie Prince Jr. was playing an asshole jock who bets that he can turn loner artist geek Rachel Lee Cook into a prom queen. Or else. The or else turns out to be walk across the graduation stage naked. Freddie's own chance to make an impression on impressionable youth. If that twist seems worthy of an M. Night Shyamalan script, that's because it is. Shyamalan secretly worked on the script for She's All That, and he didn't tell anyone for 13 years. And get this, M. Night was inspired by his own high school years. When he was a kid, his friend lost a bet, and his punishment was running across campus naked. Hi, I'm Amy Nicholson, Chief Film Critic for MTV News, and welcome to Skillset, the podcast where every guest is an expert, and every week they teach you and me a new way to look at the movies. Today is the last episode of Skillset's entire season about high school movies. It's our graduation. But I can't throw my cap before I get to talk about three of my all-time favorite flicks. First up, Bring It On was our first look at the crazy world of high school competitive cheerleading. But it turns out some of those insane moves, okay, a lot of those insane moves, aren't technically legal. So how real is Bring It On? We ask Susie Noblock of the National Federation of State High School Associations, who oversees cheer battles to separate the truth from the tinsel. Then we talk about the most famous prom dress in movie history. Okay, hint. It's pink, and it's covered in blood. It's Carrie's, and costume designer Louis Sequeira had the tough job of updating it for the 2013 sequel. And finally, let's go to Harry Potter's Hogwarts, where the class subjects are fiction, but the teaching styles are all too real. We ask educator Dr. Melissa Johnson who is the worst teacher at Hogwarts, and she doesn't pick the one who tries to kill their students. That's all in this week's episode of Skillset. If audiences learned anything from Peyton Reed's Bring It On, it's that high school competitive cheerleading is intense. Also, that Gabrielle Union has the best death stare in the world. The routines that she and Kirsten Dunst perform in Bring It On are huge and spectacular and just the right amount of corny. They're also illegal, according to the official cheerleading competition rules set by the National Federation of State High School Associations. So was Bring It On good for cheerleading? Or did it give kids the wrong idea? Let's ask NFHS Director of Activities and Sports, Susie Noblock. So before Bring It On came out, the biggest cheerleading pop culture story was that mom who hired a hitman to kill a rival and get her daughter on the squad. Is it safe to say that Bring It On was a more accurate representation of cheerleading? 
Well, um, chewing has definitely evolved throughout um, time. And when we hear of stories such as the unfortunate one that you described to um, even scenarios in Bring It On, it kind of brings a totally different light into what your programs look like for better and worse. And sometimes it, it contributes to oftentimes the stereotypes that comes with cheer and dance programs. So I guess it definitely brought it to the mainstream. Um, but there are a lot of great things that um, come out of cheer and dance programs than sometimes what we hear in the news and what we see in, in some stereotypical performances. Totally. Like, Bring It On was the first time, I think, when people really realized how many people show up to cheer for cheerleaders. You, and when you go to cheerleading competitions like the ones we see in the film, one thing you're not going to see is some of the stunts you see in the film. Because I heard that some of the stunts you see in Bring It On are actually illegal in Hype's high school competitions. Like, which ones? Well, correct. The National Federation of State High School Associations and ACCA um, work diligently to make sure that there are sound rules in place for interscholastic high school programs. But that doesn't always cover club programs or, um, you know, rec programs that you might see in some different capacities. So when we watch those shows, those of us who are rule enthusiasts, it's always fun to watch and say, oh, that's illegal, that's illegal, can't do that in high school. But we know that for the entertainment value you see in in TV and in the shows, that oftentimes those stunts are added for elaboration. Um, But it's really fun to see, you know, the culture of the event, like you had mentioned, at those competitions, they bring their own fan base. And it's fun to see school student bodies cheer for the cheerleaders. So if I'm watching Bring It On and I don't have a judge by my side, what are they doing in Bring It On that I couldn't do if I was a high school cheerleader? Well, um, some of the um, the rotations, flipping and basket tosses, are not permitted in high school level, but they are permitted in college level. So those would be an example of the inverted skills that wouldn't be allowed. And as the rule book evolves and changes and we evaluate injury reports, I have seen in the 12 years I've been involved with the high school rule book, really an evolution of allowing some skills that are safe and minimize risk. So it's really an exciting time for cheer and dance programs as we're seeing more creativity and more of an allowance to do some of those skills. What happens if you do something like the flyover, right, where they toss a cheerleader from one group to another, which I think is another thing that's not permitted in high school cheerleading? Is a team disqualified? Well, it varies on the competition rules. Um, Typically, when you see a skill where they transition in air, release skill from one set of bases to another set of bases, which would be prohibited, they could get a penalty from, um, you know, anywhere from what that state or organization score sheet would be. Um, Sometimes it could be one point, five points, ten points, and oftentimes with those larger point deductions, it could lead to disqualification. Typically, teams like that don't advance, and they should know way before that competition what the rule book allows them to do and not to do. What would the judges do if they saw, like we see here, the Toros stealing routines from another team? That's really an interesting question, and I'm seeing this um, 
type of plagiarism of creative material, not just in cheer and dance, but we kind of see it rear its head in speech performances where folks can get, you know, everything on video, YouTube now. They watch performances and they may steal choreography or steal cuttings or material. And then not until you see it again out in the circuit, you realize that that material might have been pulled. Um, but, you know, it, it's there's no creative license on that because you can alter and change it enough to say, well, it's not exactly like that routine. So it's really more of a management of ethical competition. And I, I heard a savvy coach once say, I don't care if people can steal my material. I'm still going to do it better than them. And I thought that was a great perspective on how to approach it because they took it as a compliment that folks wanted to, you know, pull their choreography, but they still hung their hat on, we'll still do it better regardless if they use some of our material. I like that, which sounds a lot like what you see here and bring it on too. Like what Isis would say, you know, fine, bring it on, we'll do our routine. We're still going to be better at it than you. Otherwise, how accurate is bring it on? Are there in real life, the intense cheer moms and the students who take this really seriously, like it's life or death? Well, I think we can see culturally an evolution of um, the intensity and parent involvement in sports across the nation, not just cheer and dance. So when you you see a show like Bring It On, you have to take it in the entertainment context it is. But I'm not surprised that there are isolated incidences where, you know, that intensity does roll over into the culture of a program. What about Spirit Fingers? Does that still happen? <laughs> well, it's like many things. There, It's a trend over time. In fact, we were just laughing, um, looking at the um, context of the Olympics. We think the finger wag might be the new um, spirit finger of this year. So it kind of evolves with what cultural trends there are right now. And, and it's also things, um, sportsmen like things like pounding the mat, like this is our mat. We own this mat. This is our house. Those are some um, negative um, unsportsmanship types of things that we wouldn't encourage at the high school level, but we see evolve sometimes through shows like Bring It On or, you know, really intense club programs. Oh, so Bring It On is influencing cheerleading now. Like it, it came out of cheerleading and now it's sort of influencing the tone of cheerleading competitions? Well, I think it it, it did in its original um, airing, and um, every time there are shows and movies like that, we always have to approach it and say, you know, that is television. Our standard is different here. So when we see those influences from TV and the media, we have to redirect and say, this is how we want our programs to be um, displayed and emulated across the nation. So what, when you watch Bring It On, is the thing that you think it just nails about cheerleading? Well, I think it nailed that many of the participants and coaches take it very serious. As we've always, you know, seen in our traditional school makeups, you know, your sports of basketball, football, volleyball, softball, that that competitive focus is exactly the same as you would see with competitive cheer dance events. Those athletes want to strive for perfection. They want to put their best out there on the floor and mat, and they work all year for that. They're highly athletic, very skilled tumblers and jumpers and athletes, and work all year in in stunting and and building their pyramids. So the skill level is one thing that I like that those show 
brought to the forefront is that these are athletes and um, it's a very athletic event and activity that's drawing kids from across the nation at a variety of ages. Yeah, I mean, this movie has that argument in it that this is about cheerleaders fighting for respect. Where is that fight now? Well, I think it's come a a very long way. And as much as um, folks in positions that I have in state athletic associations to continue to move forward um, that that sport focus and try to minimize those stereotypes often aligned with cheer and dance. We want folks to know that these are student athletes in your schools, in your programs, and that this gives them another venue, another opportunity to be recognized and show their talent. So I feel it's moving in the right direction. All right. Well, last question, Susie. Do you believe in the spirit stick curse? (laughs) Again, I think it makes for great TV. I don't know if I believe in it or not, but you know what? If it it keeps kids healthy and involved and keeps a good storyline, then let's move ahead for the next series or episode of Bring It On. Awesome. Well, Susie, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Hope you guys had fun with that. That was Susie Noblock. Director of Activities and Sports at the National Federation of State High School Associations and ruler of the cheerocracy. Picture Carrie's pink prom dress. It's an icon, right up there with Marilyn Monroe's windswept white halter dress and Audrey Hepburn's slim black gown from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Icons are forever. So how do you update an icon when Hollywood decides to make a remake of Carrie 37 years after the original? That's several lifetimes in teenage trends. Costume designer Louis Sequeira was awarded that challenge. And then he had to cover his creation in blood. Let's talk to him about the trauma. So Louis, how iconic is the original Carrie dress? Well, I think, I mean, I think the, the dress obviously is very iconic. And given the time period, it was in itself kind of an off piece. So it actually was one of the more important design elements, I thought, of the film was, you know, how am I going to update this, still pay homage to the original, make it still feel off from current fashion trends, um, and explain why it was what it was. So where did you start? Because you have to do all of that and you have to straddle the dress looking innocent, like an innocent like Carrie would wear it, while being just sexy enough that her mother would get upset that you can see her dirty pillows. Exactly. And and also explain how it got made because it would have been made by her. Where did the pattern come from? And And so basically what I thought is, given that the slip dress in modern day is just something, you know, that... It may be out of fashion now in modern modern day, but it is something that you know we associate as, as a modern look. So I decided to go further back, and I found a great old bias cut dress that we modified. And to describe it for people, you know, where Chloe's differs from Sissy's is that it the straps cross around the back. It's got a bow. The straps are a little thicker. It's a little more structured. These these patterns that you were drawing from, were they from around the time of the original film back in 1976, or where were you looking? No, no, no. They were they were further back. So um, basically, given given that you know the mom was a dressmaker, 
and her age, we we decided to go even further back. So it's actually a 30s dress. It has very simple lines. It's actually not quite structured at all. It's all bias cut, so you put it on the body and, and it accentuates that, that innocent quality that uh, Chloe had and, um, and in a way, very sexy. So that's why I chose to go that, that route. You ended up making, I heard, over 30 copies of this dress. Why? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the final count was, but it was, it was quite a few. And, and the reason was, you know, we do not shoot in sequence. So every segment of the film, we, we tracked the dress from, you know, pristine and had three dresses for the bucket drop. And then we had a couple of dresses that had pre-done um, blood on them. Then we did another another version where the sprinklers came on, and so that blood had to basically get watered down and spread along into the dress. And then through the mayhem, you know, it got to the finale, which was you know dirty, completely um, soaked in in blood and water and dirt. And so we had to have various versions of each of those in multitudes. How bloody and gross did they look in person? Well, the, the interesting antidote was that the first day we put the post-bucket dress in Chloe's room, Chloe uh, called her mom and said, look, they put this red bloody dress in my room, and she went to go touch it to put it on, and it was completely dry because it was just done with um, pigment and a compound that looked wet. So it looked and felt pretty pretty wet, um, but it was completely dry. What would you have done if light pink was not Chloe Grace Moretz's color? Uh, I think I think what you'll see, I think from the dress, it was actually uh, an interesting color of light pink because it was actually not a bluey pink. I mean, there's lots of colors within pink. And so the pink was, was actually not as cool a pink. It was a bit more warmer. So what would we have done? You know, potentially would have picked, uh, you know, a different hue. But in first meeting with Chloe, we had a lot of different pinks. And that fabric was actually dyed to our specs. Well, Lewis, thank you so much for talking to me about this. I hope all of your dances are happy. Well, thank you so much. That was costume designer Louis Sequeira of the Carrie remake. Remember, pillows are not dirty. And if you want to steal a look from Carrie for your next party, go for her date Tommy's powder blue ruffled tuxedo. The teachers at Hogwarts had fantastical names. Quirinos Quirrell, Gilderoy Lockhart, Rubius Hagrid, Horace Slughorn. But take away the potions and the spells, and their actual teaching methods are as realistic as any school. There's good teachers and bad teachers, boring classes, and classes that should be interesting, but somehow still wind up boring because the teacher just doesn't care. Dr. Melissa Johnson of Virginia Commonwealth University studied the Hogwarts teaching styles, and she wrote a paper on it. Wands or quills? Lessons in Pedagogy from Harry Potter. Is there any spell that can fix an awful teacher? Maybe not, but here is how to spot one. So, Dr. Johnson, 
hit me with the hard truth. Who is the worst teacher at Hogwarts? Uh, the worst teacher at Hogwarts is Professor Benz, who teaches history of magic, and he's a ghost. So he's not very engaged, and his pedagogical methods are, are pretty out of date because he's been dead for a while. But he um, he's so removed from sort of everyday reality that he doesn't even really see his students in front of him, and he's delivering the same lectures that he's delivered for a very long time. Um, and so he's not engaging the students, and they're not very learning very much from him. Well, yeah, I love that you're saying bins because I think a lot of people might have thought you'd say Snape or maybe one of the teachers that tried to kill someone. But it, you're, it seems like you're drawing a distinction between evil and bad teaching. What's that difference? Um, so I think that people who say Snape haven't read all the books. <laughs> because while he's a terrible teacher in the classroom, he actually does teach Harry Potter or quite a bit outside of the classroom as he starts to understand sort of the... Uh, secret work that Snape has been doing, that he's basically a double agent. He teaches him a lot about loyalty and the importance of keeping secrets to protect people. He is a terrible classroom teacher, but he doesn't actually really hurt anyone. And they do manage to learn things from him. Uh, you know, Hermione, who can learn from anyone, learns quite a bit from Snape about how to make potions. And I guess that we could probably say that Mad-Eye Moody is a very dangerous teacher because he is trying to kill Harry. But once again, the students actually learn quite a bit from him. <laughs> I think we can learn in all sorts of places. And I think we can learn from people whose intentions might not be good. So I think that there is definitely a, a distinct line between evil and bad teaching. What about a line between good and friendly? Are, are there teachers that Harry likes who still aren't good teachers? Um, I would argue that Hagrid is not a very good teacher, um, and he's a lovely man. You know, he's a he's a wonderful human being, half giant human being, and he cares deeply for the for the students, and he cares deeply for his uh, animals that he's looking after. But he's not a very effective teacher, um, and it's not because his techniques are poor. Uh, he does a lot of active learning. He does a lot of experiential learning, where the students are actually taking care of the animals. Um, it's because he doesn't have confidence, um, and he doesn't have authority in the classroom, despite his great size. Um, so he deals with a lot of the students uh, not paying attention and not respecting his authority, and I think that leads to some probably not very effective lessons. You know, J.K. Rowling used to be a teacher. Is that obvious to you when you read the books? You know, I did not actually know that, <laughs> um, but it is... I think it is very, what she's doing in the book and her portrayal of teachers is very accurate um, in sort of the range of teaching that we get. And she's uh, certainly, I think, doing a very effective satire of ineffective teachers, um, as well as doing a, a good portrayal of effective teachers. So that doesn't surprise me at all, but I didn't actually know that. You, you, you've been talking here about different types of learning, like experiential learning versus book learning versus lecture learning. Do you see in this series that different students need different things? Yes, um, and I think that's true in real life as well. I've been teaching for about 20 years. So when you have a student like Hermione, who is just extremely curious, um, uh, really wants to learn a lot, bases her identity on learning, really wants to be the best at everything. She's, she's in many ways driven by competition, but it's also competition against herself. Uh, she's going to learn no matter what you do. Hermione is the only student in the books who can learn from Professor Ben. She can learn from sort of just rote lecturing. So she's a very successful learner in any kind of uh, environment. Uh, she teaches herself quite effectively as well from books. 
Um, and then there are learners like Neville Longbottom, who have a lot of difficulty in certain learning situations. He does really well in the herbology classes that Professor Spout teaches because he feels safe there and he feels encouraged. And he does terribly in uh, Professor Snape's classes and he does terribly in most other classes where he feels like he's going to be exposed for not being uh, competent, I think. So for Neville, I think, in particular, and he's one of the students that I really focused on who really illustrates for us how different teaching methods can affect different students. Um, It really is important that he be supported, that he be given confidence, that he be allowed to cooperate and collaborate with other students because that's where he's most successful. Yeah, I mean, Harry seems like such an interesting case because it seems like half of what Harry learns, he learns outside of the classroom. Yes, and there are, you know, there are several scholars that really focus on that aspect of Hogwarts that were that most of the learning takes place outside of the classroom and there's a lot of educational research that says that's absolutely true. Um but my argument is that there actually is a lot of learning going on in the classrooms as well and that they take that learning and apply it outside of the classroom. So we see those kind of transformational moments um outside of the classroom, but it's really based on what they're learning in the classrooms, I think. So, as a teacher yourself, has taking this close of a look at Harry Potter affected how you teach students? Um, I really do think it has. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of an introverted, uh, undemonstrative person, and um, I really idolize Professor McGonagall. <laughs> She's my favorite teacher in Harry Potter, um, and I just I like that she doesn't pick any nonsense, and she's very strict, and the students respect her, and. Um, I I really always wanted to be that teacher um, until I got a little older and I started realizing that that sort of distance I was putting between myself and my students was not facilitating their learning. Um, So I try, like Lupin does, um, to try to put them more at ease now, to try to show them that I understand their situations, that I feel empathy for them, that they can come and talk to me. I think part of the process of that transformation for me was reading the books, and and part of it was just teaching and seeing how students were affected by my demeanor in the classroom. Uh, We talk a lot about teaching personas um, in my department and and certainly in conversations about teaching and learning in general. And so it's something I put a lot of thought into, and I make more of an effort these days to have a friendlier, more welcoming persona, I think, than Professor McGonagall does. I know, but I do love that you say McGonagall because I think she's such a good example of a teacher who may not be the nicest, but to me, she might be the best teacher in the whole series. Yeah, I I actually, I I thought that myself until I really started kind of digging into it. Um, And what you, when you really pay attention to those classroom scenes and how the students do on the tests, uh, which are testing their abilities, her students are not as successful as I think they would be if she were the best teacher. Um, And part of what I, I and other scholars have noticed is that uh, she doesn't scaffold enough. She doesn't give them enough process. She doesn't break down the transfiguration into it into manageable steps for them. Uh, she demonstrates it, and then they just practice it and, and keep trying to do it, but they fail a lot. Um, and failure is part of learning. But even when they're sitting their tests, they, they're still struggling with it a great deal, whereas Flitwick and Charms and Herbology, they're just not having as much trouble. Oh, so then who do you think is the best teacher? There's been arguments that it's Dumbledore and Harry, but they're talking particularly about teaching that happens outside of the classroom environment. Um, I would say that Lupin is certainly among the top two. I actually think that uh, Professor Flitwick, the charms instructor, is one of the most effective teachers. Oh, what, what does he do so well? 
he creates a, an atmosphere in his classroom where students are willing to take risks um, and they're not afraid of failure. Uh, he makes it kind of fun for them. And he he is very encouraging. He's very welcoming. Uh, he's not arrogant. He's not intimidating. He doesn't endanger them. So all in all, do you think Hogwarts is a good school? Hmm. I think that if it produced a class of students who could defeat Lord Voldemort, that would argue that it's a good school. Uh, they have been successful in becoming witches and, witches and wizards, which is the aim of the school, and um, upholding the good, uh, the force of good against evil. But I think they certainly do learn defense against the dark arts very well. They learn transfiguration. They learn charms. Um, and they learn how to be ethical um, in very many ways other than the, the plagiarism that I've already mentioned. So, yeah, I would say it's a successful school. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. This has been really interesting. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking. That was Dr. Melissa Johnson grading the teachers of Harry Potter's Hogwarts. I am so glad she could join us for this week's episode of Skillset. And I am so glad you could join us, too, Thank you for learning along with us during this season's salute to high school movies. I'm Amy Nicholson, and over the next couple months, you can find my movie reviews at MTV and me on Twitter at the Amy Nicholson. Thank you so much for listening to this season of Skillset. Subscribe to Skillset on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. And hey, give us a rating while you're at it. We will be back in early spring with our third season and a new theme. We'll be traveling around the world in eight episodes. So come along for a new adventure, a new batch of experts, and hopefully a new, new way to look at the movies. This episode of Skillset was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, Kasia Mihailovich, and James T. Green for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.